Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. Welcome everybody to the UNESCO RILA podcast series, The Sounds of Good Books. We are delighted to have here today Dr. Haula Badwan to talk about her new book, which is entitled Language in a Globalized World. And the book was published in 2021 by Palgrave and Macmillan. My name is Maria Grazia Imperiale, and I am a lecturer in adult education at the University of Glasgow. I'm coming to you from the city of Glasgow in Scotland. I'm very, very happy today to have Haula with us. Haula is a senior lecturer in TESOL and applied linguistics at Manchester Metropolitan University. As she wrote in her book, her story is the story of migration and mobility and since when she was a child. So originally from Palestine, she lived and studied and worked in different countries before coming to the UK. And of course, her origins and her travels and the languages, many languages that she speaks, have an influence on her thinking and on the thinking that is behind this book. Before asking Haula more about her book, I would like first to read some of the words that Haula wrote herself in her conclusions. So I'm quoting from page 223 Language in a globalized world has pointed towards insights and tools that language educators, researchers, and students can utilize to reimagine language, education, and pedagogical practices in ways reflective of mobility, fluidity, and commitments to social justice. It also aims to engage the wider public in discussions about alternative ways of perceiving language in order to create new social arrangements that care for and foster language. The unlearning and co-learning this book calls for can indeed transform the cultural geopolitics of knowledge about language in a globalized world. As you can hear from this brief quote, you can already imagine the breadth of this book, which covers many different topics. It's also a book that is written for different audiences, like for educators, for researchers, students, and as Haula wrote, even for the wider public. It's a book that is a commitment to social justice through language, through languages, and language education. In this book, as we'll talk about during this podcast, there are so many different threads that it is a strong focus on mobility, which is very timely. And especially for all of us being in this pandemic and post-pandemic years, most of us have experienced mobility, but also immobility and the precarity of mobility. Just a comment maybe from me on the book that perhaps what really drew me into the book uh, from the outset was that I could strongly relate to Haula's experiences of migration and of being a multilingual person, probably with many multilingual identities and all that comes with it. So questions such as what English we speak, what accents we have, what shall I do about my foreign accent? 
all these are questions that at some point of, of my life I had to deal with and I'm still dealing with, in fact. Interesting, the title of the book says language in a globalized world, even though it is a book about different languages. She didn't write languages in the globalized world. It is language in a globalized world. And here's perhaps what's different about her book, that she embraces multilingually. Language is not a noun, but a verb. But I let Kaula talk more about this. Perhaps, Kaula, we could kick off our conversation with a question on what's different about your book? Why, why did you want to write it? Thank you, Grazia. So let me start by saying hello, everybody. Thank you so much for inviting me to this podcast. I'm, I'm very honoured to be able to have this opportunity to talk to you about my book. And I'm very pleased, Grazia, to hear that when you were reading my book, you felt that you could relate to many of these experiences that I mentioned in this book. I think this is one of, one of the key aspects that I wanted to be able to do through this book. I wanted people to be able to relate. I wanted people to reciprocate by narrating more stories about their own experiences with language in, in a world of globalization and mobility. To answer your question, what is different about this book? Why did I want to write this book? As somebody who studied linguistics as, a, uh, as an undergraduate student and as a multilingual speaker myself, I struggled with the emphasis on language for communication alone. So language for me as a linguistics student was all about intelligibility, accuracy, communication. It was all about meaning. And that is part of language, but that did not resonate with my own experiences of what language means to me as a multilingual speaker. So being between linguistics as a discipline concerned with structure and syntax and semantics and accuracy and meaning, mm -hmm. and a multilingual speaker who's negotiating meaning beyond language, I found myself grappling with what language is. And what I tried to do in this book is I tried to open up the understanding of language, going beyond the structural understanding of what language might mean to a more broad, much more inclusive understanding of language. This is a book about the individual. This is about the mobile, the personal, the lived, and the voices of individuals and how they feel and how they make meaning and how they navigate different language spaces in their lives. So this is really what, why I wanted to write this book. A lot of books in linguistics are about what language should be. I wanted this book to be about what language is. And once you enter this domain of trying to understand what language is, you realize that language is very messy. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not just about communication. Language is about belonging. It's about becoming. It's about participation. It's about performing identity. It's about all of these things and meaning, of course, is, is one of them. So language becomes messy as you start looking at language from the perspective of what language is around us. And what I try to do in this book is I try to attend to the nuances of what language is 
as I see language around us. One of the key things that really helped me sort of stay with, with this focus is the work of Donna Haraway when she talks about the notion of staying with the trouble. She argues that to make trouble is all about making things cloudy and stirring things up, disturbing things. And as I said earlier, as a linguistic student who was mainly trained to look at the accuracy of language and structure, what I wanted to do through this book was to stir up linguistics, to open up the understanding of language in order to be able to observe our thick present. Our present is very thick, Gracia, and, mm -hmm. and, and our listeners. It's very thick because of all of these complex temporalities, materialities, spatialities, languages, languaging, and the normative frames. We live in very thick present. And this sort of places us in a really tricky position. How do we respond to that thick present as language researchers and as an academics? This is a very complex question, and I don't claim that I know the answer to that question. But what I have tried to do in this book was I tried to address that question by being truly present. So in this book, I try to look at, I, I present different stories. I present my story with, with the child in, who grew in me. So I talk a lot about my childhood. I talk about my own mobility. I talk about my experiences with being a mother with my own children and raising them bilingually, or at least trying to raise them bilingually. I talk about experiences of going to the park, experiences of picking children from school, experiences of teaching language and globalization at university. And through all of these stories, I try to take the readers with me on a journey to see how we enter and exit language spaces. And I think this is, this is really what I wanted this book to be. I wanted it to be different in a way that reflects the nuances of what language can be as we live with it in our everyday life. So I hope I answered your question, Gracia, yeah. about why I wanted to write this book. Absolutely. Thanks, uh, Khaula, for this exhaustive answer to, to my question. And I can tell you as a reader, like, you definitely managed to do what you had in mind with this book. We can feel the presence, we can read your stories and through your stories really relate to what you are arguing in the book. But also the book is full of references. It's, you know, it's a treasure. When, when you, some students or researchers need to go and find new references on the recent publication, uh, publications and recent terms in applied linguistics, this book gives really loads, is a rich, rich um, depository of all these references that are intertwined together. So can I, can I now ask you who and what has inspired you and informed your understandings and conceptualizations of language in a globalized world? Who were those people? This is a really good question. And it's, it's, a very, it's, it's a very difficult question at the same time because it sort of forces you to narrow things down. But there are certainly certain people who, who inspired me to think about language differently. Um, 
the child in me made me think about language differently. The frustration that I lived as a child between different language spaces. I grew up being constantly asked to change the way I spoke. And it wasn't because I didn't speak properly. And it wasn't because I wasn't intelligible to my speakers. I was constantly asked to change the way I spoke because I sounded odd. I sounded different. Uh, I was navigating language spaces. And that frustration in me as a child, I remember at one point, I came to my mom at the age of seven years old and I said to her, I hate my language because whenever I open my mouth, people ask me to change, to, to change how I speak. So I grew up in Saudi Arabia as a Palestinian child and my parents wanted me to speak Palestinian Arabic. Whereas at school, I wanted to speak Saudi Arabic. I wanted to fit in. And one day, my classmates discovered that I am not Saudi. I am not one of them. And I remember one of the children asked me, so why do you speak like us when you are not one of us? Mm -hmm. uh, that seven-year-old child in me struggled to respond. I think all what I knew at that time was I wanted to fit in. Through mobility, we moved from one place into another and we settled in Palestine. And I used to think that I spoke very good Palestinian Arabic because this is the language I spoke with my parents at home. But to my surprise, I realized that my Palestinian Arabic was not good enough. It wasn't Palestinian enough. <laughs> I was trapped between social classes because my, my dad comes from a refugee background. My mom comes from an urban uh, upper class background. So I was trapped between social classes and language expectations. And this is what I meant by saying I was constantly asked to change the way I spoke. The same thing happened when I learned English as, as my second language. And I heard so many people making comments on how American my English sounded to them. And I was asked questions, why do you speak American English when, I'm not, when you're not American? And my response is, do I? <laughs> do I speak American English? So part of, part of the inspiration is, is my own frustration, is, is the linguistic dilemma that, that I have lived with throughout my life. But I also see this dilemma with my own children, whom I'm trying to raise bilingually. A significant part of this book was written during lockdown, and that was a very interesting moment, Gracia, because during lockdown, all our understanding of mobility has turned on its head. We were completely immobile. Uh, and I was writing about language and context of mobility and globalization. What I realized at that time was that even though we were completely immobile, language was always mobile. Language was always moving around us and moving us around. So I could hear how my children were entering different language spaces when they joined the Zoom calls for their school in the morning, and then they watch TV, and then they play on the iPad, and most of the apps are American apps with American English, and then they go on Skype and they talk to their grandparents, a mix of Arabic and a mix of English. They use their pens and papers and drawings. They make things, they cut pieces, and I walk on paper all the time. <laughs> so I was surrounded by all of, yeah. all of these practices of meaning making and languaging while being trapped at home. 
Mm-hmm. And that was a key inspiration for me. You know, imagine writing about language and globalization in that context and sort of mm-hmm. thinking about how language is moving around you and mm-hmm. how language is moving us around. I think that that was fascinating. And that was certainly one of the key inspirations for me when I was writing this book. I also talk about my students a lot. So many of the chapters in this book happened mainly because of classroom debates and classroom conversations. And I feel that sometimes we don't acknowledge our students enough. We don't talk about how our students contribute to our own intellectual development as Mm -hmm. academics. And I wanted to acknowledge that in my book. In, in several instances, I talk about classroom discussions and debates and how these classroom discussions and debates made me think about certain things in a certain way. And you know how we're constantly asked to, to produce res- teaching that is research-informed? <laughs> yes. I try to say we also need to think about teaching-inspired research. And this is one of the key things that I tried to follow um, in this book. I was also inspired by moments of discomfort and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. These moments are quite challenging to understand as they happen. Yes. But as you try to think about them, these are learning moments. They help you learn and think and conceptualize things in a different way. And again, in my book, um, in one of the chapters where I talk about the teaching about language in a globalized world, I talk about the notion of vulnerability. And I talk about different types of vulnerability, being personally vulnerable, feeling collectively vulnerable with Mm -hmm. my students. And I also talk about the idea of the disciplinary vulnerability, this idea that a discipline alone is no longer enough to help us understand the complexity of our social world. And we have to go beyond these disciplines. And that takes me to the last group of people. If I'm talking about the different groups that inspired me, I talked about myself, my children, my students, moments of vulnerability and discomfort. The last group would go to the interdisciplinary body of researchers that I was very fortunate to work with and learn from over the past years. It's very difficult, Gracia, to develop a list of names to say these are the Mm. names that inspired me. But um, rather than naming names, I I would like to mention some of the key theories or disciplines that have been crucial to, to my understanding. So I could think of human geography as one of the key disciplines because thanks to human geography and to the work of Doreen Massey and Tim Ungold, that I landed on these innovative understandings of space and spatiality and dwelling that have been very important to my understanding of the spatial turn in applied linguistics. I also learned a great deal from feminist studies, literacy studies, post-human philosophies, sociology, Mm -hmm. intercultural communication, and critical applied linguistics. While doing all of, while going through all of that unique interdisciplinary mix, the challenge for me was putting all of this together in a way which is accessible to a wider readership. And I'm very pleased to hear you saying that the book is accessible to a wider audience. And I hope it, it remains accessible to a wider audience. 
Yeah, thank you, Khaula, for this. And yeah, related to what you are talking about now, about the different threads that you had to pull together, how difficult, how challenging it was to draw all these threads together, which are present in the book. So just to give our listeners some examples, like just a couple of titles of some book chapters. Yeah. They are, for example, Language and the Sociolinguistic Market. Language is Becoming in the World, From Language to Languaging, Language and Semiotic Mobility, The Spatial Turn in Applied Linguistics, Language and Identity in a Globalized World, Language and Social Injustice. So as you can see, these are just some of the chapters of the book, and there are different topics uh, uh, all weaved uh, together. So how challenging was to draw all these threads together? So to answer your question um, about how difficult that was, that was very difficult. And, and I think that the, there are two challenges. The first challenge is, how do you present a narrative that makes sense, a narrative that is coherent mm-hmm. uh, and that flows logically and smoothly? The other challenge is, how do you keep this book about what language is? And as I said earlier, once we start looking at what language is, we start to realize that language is is very messy. And in order to analyze it and understand it, we need to think intersectionally and in a transdisciplinary way. So that was certainly one of the key challenges in the book. Um, What I tried to do was I tried to start by by contextualizing the language about language. So when I started in the first two chapters, I started talking about the global spread of English, trying to provide a historical overview of the circumstances under which English became the international lingua franca. And that was linked to the second chapter when I started talking about the sociolinguistic market. Mm -hmm. Having established this kind of historical understanding of language, because I think this is very important. The way we see language today, our beliefs, our attitudes, the descriptions that we use when we talk about language, all of these descriptions are historically constituted. So if you think about using adjectives such as proper or standard or prestigious or posh, all of these adjectives that we use to describe language are things that have been historically constructed. And for that reason, I wanted to establish that at the beginning before I move on to challenge some of these um, discussions. So in chapter three, when I talk about the sociolinguistic market, I talk about how we constantly talk about language in terms of value, profit. Mm -hmm. If you learn another language, you become employable. It's a really good value. So I talk about this neoliberal discourse about language, which is very common and very dominant. And then in the chapter that follows that, in chapter four, I challenge that when I talk about language as becoming in the world. So I talk about language in relation to identity, in relation to what language means for us and how language matters to us. And the chapters that follow from that start talking about language, languaging. So how do we talk about language? And, and I justify then why I'm using the term language rather than languages in the title to describe more of an unbounded understanding of language that transcends the boundaries of um, sociopolitical labels. 
And then I move on to talk about mobility. Uh, chapter six is trying to answer the question, so what happens to our language when we move from one place into another? And this is a really complex question and there isn't a neat answer. And, and that takes the reader nicely to the following chapter when I talk about the spatial turn in applied linguistics and how do we talk about place and space and what's the role of language in how we understand place and or how we talk about place. And then the remaining three chapters are really about language and identity in a globalized world, which links nicely to a discussion about language and social justice and a discussion about teaching, because I wanted to challenge the teaching and research binary, which is certainly an issue in UK higher education. And I wanted to challenge that by saying all of this research and theorization and conceptualization of language can also be linked to what happens in the classroom. And some of it is actually inspired by some of the puzzlements that my students had in the classroom. So that was, to answer your question, that was a really difficult task. I wanted it to be more of a story. And I hope that the readers who go through the journey from one chapter into another could see how I'm taking them from one thematic area into another, hopefully building up a bigger story um, that contributes to our understanding of language in a globalized world. Yeah, thank you very much, Khaula, for this. To use your final thoughts on this, talking about a journey with, with, which you discuss in your book, I would like maybe now to come to my favorite chapter, in fact, which is the one about the spatial turn in applied linguistics. In that chapter, I have to say in all the book, but especially in that chapter, you draw for, from some of my favorite scholars at all. And you also start with a nice vignette about a conversation that uh, your son had with a nodiologist. And maybe let me just read it aloud. And so the conversation goes, the audiologist says, we are done now. I need to go. I'm meeting my friend who has just come from Italy. And your son replies, what languages do they speak in Italy? And the audiologist says, they speak many languages in Italy. Italian is one of them. And your son concludes with, can I have a sticker now? So I found this lovely introduction to your chapter. From this, you start talking about the spatial turn in applied linguistics. Maybe can you tell us what the spatial turn is about and how important it is to uh, your understanding of language and of language and social justice? Thank you. The, the spatial turn is certainly one of one of the most important turns in, in our mm. contemporary research in applied linguistics. It's very important because it contributes to our understanding of language and society, and it feeds into the new paradigm of sociolinguistics, which some people call sociolinguistics of mobility, others call it sociolinguistics of globalization and contact. So whatever you call this paradigm, this paradigm is really about the spatial turn. It's, it's about understanding the relationship between language and, and, and space. As you mentioned, I landed on this turn really by accident. So I mentioned in this chapter two incidents. The first was the incident that you mentioned with my son. And I remember myself leaving the hospital thinking, what would happen 
to our children's understanding of the world, if we tell them that in any place there are many languages and one of them is their national language. We often do the opposite. We often say yeah. in this country, we speak this language. So we start, to, to, we start with this process of anchoring language to a place. And we make our children make this very rigid connection between a geographical location and a place. And we can see the social injustices that could occur as a result of this rigid understanding. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have to look too far to find news reports of people who were physically or verbally abused because they spoke a language which doesn't seem as appropriate or legitimate in a place. So this is why the spatial turn is very important. And it's also important to our current work on social justice, because social justice is all about participation. And it, how do we ensure that all identity groups have full and equitable participation? For that participation to happen, we need to be mindful of the spatial turn. We need to be mindful of what, what counts as place, what makes place, and how can we remake place in ways that are uh, responsive to the coming and going of people. Mm. Um, one of the other concepts that I mention in this spatial turn is the notion of symbolic violence. Yeah. Symbolic violence is about the idea of enduring pain while also trying to justify why this thing has happened. So I remember an example that I cite in the book of a Gujarati English speaker mm -hmm. who was on the train. She was speaking to her grandmother who doesn't speak English. So she was speaking in Gujarati. And she reported that when she was speaking in Gujarati, she received strange, she called them funny looks. She, re she received funny looks from a fellow commuter. But then... She felt, she, I asked her, how, how did these looks make you feel? And she said, I felt very uncomfortable and I felt very vulnerable. But I understand why she gave me these looks because she doesn't understand Gujarati. So this is an example of symbolic violence. This is an example of how people endure pain yeah. while also trying to justify it. And they try to justify the disadvantage. They try to justify why it's okay for this thing to happen. And unfortunately, this is something that many people experience, particularly people from refugee and asylum-seeking background. They will endure a lot of pain. Most of it will be linked to linguistic disadvantage. But they will, while enduring all of that, they will continue to justify it. They'll continue to say, well, this has happened because I don't speak English or because my English isn't good. The sad reality of the matter is that even if they reach very advanced levels of English, there is no guarantee that this is going to stop. So this is why the, the spatial turn is very important, because it directs the attention to the dynamics of the place, to the dynamics of space, to how, when we talk about spatiality, we talk about the coming and going of people. We talk about this dynamic understanding of how place is constantly in the making. This is a rather new understanding in sociolinguistics. So if we look at traditional sociolinguistics research, 
place tended to be something static. Yes. So if you look at sociolinguistic variation, you see all of these neat sociolinguistic maps, and you see all the distribution, the, the neat horizontal distribution of linguistic features across space. And these maps, they give you the impression that these communities, these speech communities are organized, they're homogeneous. This is how these people speak in this part. This is how people speak in that part. But these maps are very problematic because we know from our lived experiences of mobility, we know that these maps reflect only certain voices in these locations. So what the spatial turn does is that it pays attention to who is in the place. And in a way, it seeks to disturb the traditional sociolinguistic variation approach that tended to focus on certain speakers in a certain place. I was very inspired by the work of Alison Phipps in this chapter, mm -hmm. particularly in relation to the notion of fostership. Yeah. Um, when I was trying to think about how do we talk about places that include people, places that makes people feel that they belong? Uh, I landed in two terms. I landed on hospitality. So we often talk about a hospitable place. And I also landed on the term inclusive. And in this chapter, I problematized the notion of hospitality and the notion of inclusion because hospitality is, is um, never absolute. With hospitality, there will always be a guest, there'll always be a host, there will always be duties and obligations. And Derrida himself, when, when he talks about hospitality, he also talks about how the host needs to make sure that they establish what is proper to protect their home. Mm -hmm. So all of that makes you think, what is proper? And is multilingualism proper to the home or is it a threat to the home? Similar things happened when I tried to think about the term inclusion, uh, because when I decide to include you in a conversation, that could imply that the, the conditions under which that conversation is going to happen were already set before you were included. Alison Phipps, in, in, in one of the talks for the UNESCO RILA of 2020, she had a wonderful talk called Fostering Integration. Yeah. And I remember when she talked about fostering, she said, I understand fostering as wrapping arms around those who need care. And I thought that was a fascinating concept. Mm -hmm. And I brought that concept into my discussion about the spatial turn because this is exactly the kind of concept that I was looking for how do we ensure that we create a space that fosters minoritized voices and marginalized bodies? And the last part of this chapter is about arguing for the need to unmoor language, mm -hmm. the idea that we need to unbreak this connection, this stubborn connection between language and place, because language is always moving around. And that's Really, that ending of, of that chapter takes us back to the vignette with which I started the chapter when the audiologist says to my son, there are many languages in a place and, and Italian is one of them. So, yes, the spatial turn is very important. And I hope that there will be more work on the, spa on the spatial turn 
because it's inseparable from our current discussions about decolonization and social justice in applied linguistics. Uh, that's so fascinating, Haula, absolutely fascinating. Maybe I'm especially intrigued in all these concepts, but recently Alison and I, with our colleagues Giovanna Facetta, published an article on hospitality in higher, in higher education. We mm -hmm. were trying and when mobility is not an option. So we discuss from examples uh, from my PhD that I conducted with teachers in the Gaza Strip, how we try to establish virtual hospitality that tries to go beyond this idea of the guests of the hosts and all the tensions that come with it. So I was really, really intrigued when I was reading your, especially this chapter and especially the recount on hospitality that you made. Uh, lovely, thank you so much for this. And maybe now can we talk a little bit more about your teaching experience? You have a whole chapter on your teaching experience, which is actually quite refreshing and, and also brave, I think. I don't know if I would be so brave to write a chapter about my own teaching experiences and put it out there. So um, <laughs> I, I found it really like a, a very refreshing chapter. And what were the main reasons for you for including your teaching experience in this book? That's a really good question and a nice comment about being brave um, <laughs> to do this. No, I, I completely, I, I completely see your point. I, I think I was brave with, with many of the stories in this book, not, not just my yeah. teaching experience. And it was very difficult, Gracia. This idea of being brave is linked to the theme of the Baal Annual Conference in 2018. If you remember, the theme of the conference was taking risks in yeah. applied linguistics. And I remember leaving that conference wondering, can I afford to take risks in applied linguistics? And if I can, what sort of risks um, I can make? And I, I completely agree with you that this book is a risky endeavor, including the chapter you mentioned about teaching. But I think it is certainly a risk worth taking, uh, particularly in relation to this chapter about my teaching experience. A, we have this very stubborn divide between teaching and research. Yeah. which I try to challenge. I try to say to the reader, all of these things that I've written about in this book were things that we talked about in the classroom. And many of the discussions that we had contributed to my new and fresh understanding of new things because of the role of my students. But I also wanted to share all of these stories because... Stories are great for, for three things. Stories are great for conviviality. Mm -hmm. I wanted to speak to you as a reader. And my, my best way of speaking to you in a convivial way is to tell you my story with the hope that you may be able to reciprocate and tell your story either back to me or to yourself or to other people around you. Stories are exciting because as soon as you hear somebody talking about their experience, you start making connection to your own experience. And this is really why I wanted to share this story, because of this convivial power of the story to make people reciprocate and, and think about their stories. The other reason why I wanted to mention this story about my teaching is I wanted to raise awareness about 
classroom as transformative spaces for learning. Yeah. And in this chapter, I take you on a journey of how I entered the field of TESOL, a very wide discipline, a discipline which is pretty much controlled by native speaker norms, mm -hmm. a discipline where you stick to a textbook, the global textbook with the glossy design and the colorful pictures and the aspirational topics. And I talked about my story of teaching these textbooks in contexts of conflict and war, where my, I was teaching in Palestine and I was teaching my students about cinemas and theater and celebrity culture, and none of that was relevant to their lives. Yeah. But that wasn't a problem at the beginning because it, it felt like a fantasy. You know, the classroom created a fantasy world, a world that takes you to a different world, if you like. But then gradually I started to develop awareness of critical pedagogy, asking myself, who am I? Who am I in the construction, on the ideological construction of my students? Uh, and that was a very troubling experience. I moved from higher education in Palestine to higher education in the UK, and very similar dilemmas happened. My students were basically in the very similar position that I was in when I started teaching in the world of TESOL. For them, English was all about accuracy and grammar and structure with no regard to how language is linked to identity and becoming in the world. Mm -hmm. So in this story, in this chapter, I narrate that and I talk about moments of vulnerability, how I felt vulnerable as a teacher in many, in, 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 in many situations and how my students and I felt collectively vulnerable as we were talking about the symbolic violence of language. Uh, I particularly remember a story, one of the students, when I finished teaching about language in a globalized world, we were talking about symbolic violence and language. And as the students were leaving the classroom, one of the students said to me, our discussion today was very dark. And then another one said, it's dark, but it's true. And we felt collectively vulnerable. Yeah. But I think that sense of collective vulnerability is a transformative space because all of these students that I teach are students who are soon to be English language teachers. So really this chapter is about making a case for how the classroom can be a space for transformative learning while also saying that transformative learning isn't easy, it's not comfortable, mm. and it's not straightforward. Uh, and I hope I succeeded in, in that. I hope that, you know, when you read my story, you sort of, I, you could resonate with how, the, with, with the potential of the classroom and, and the power of the classroom, but also of, of the dilemma of negotiating all of these things in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Khaula. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also writing at the moment a chapter on discomfort and vulnerability, in which I'm, as Vignects, I'm using instances where students were pushing back on the inputs that I was giving. So yes, definitely. I can resonate with all you were saying and with the examples that you use in the book. Yeah, that's, it's lovely, Inter such an interesting work. And it reminds me so much of the work of Bell Hooks and of Michelinos Zembilas on 
pedagogy of discomfort and vulnerability and taking risks and so on. Lovely. Thank you so much for this. Perhaps we can conclude our interview today with the last chapter that you wrote, the surviving the language blocks. So what are these blocks and how can we survive them? And perhaps from there, you can also tell us a little bit about future directions that you see for the field of applied linguistics. Thank you. Um, what are the blocks? Uh, there are so many blocks. Blocks are the linguistic expectations that are placed on us. So as individuals in our daily life, we enter and exit language spaces all the time. And in these different language spaces, there are multiple linguistic expectations that are placed on us. Meeting these linguistic expectations is what I refer to as surviving the language block. The term block indicates that these things are rigid. There are not negotiable. So, for example, one of the blocks that we have to navigate in our daily life, particularly in our professional life, is the standard variety block. This expectation that we have to speak in a certain way in order to sound like you know, good academics or good readers or good writers or good teachers. So this expectation which is, placed, which is placed on us is an example of a language block that we have to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use the term survive because to survive something means that you're actually trying hard to get to this thing. You're trying hard to achieve it. We can't remove language blocks, unfortunately. Uh, and, and I talk about it in my conclusion by saying, all what we can do is we, we try to survive them. The, these blocks are very stubborn. They're very rigid. And we are trying our best to survive them. I do mention a list of examples of language blocks. So for the mobile people, they have to survive the national language block. So they have to speak the national language. Mm-hmm. But not in any way or any form. It has to be in the standard variety of that national language. So that's another block. Another example of another block is the dominant language variety in a place. So as people move from one place into another, they're not only expected to speak the national language and the standard variety, but they're also expected to be good at the regional variety in the place. When we talk about people who are multilingual or bilingual, there's another language block, which is they're expected to be perfect at all of the languages they speak. So this is the idea of language blocks, that these expectations are there all the time, um, the numerous expectations. And what we try to do in our everyday life is we try to survive these language blocks. We need a lot of empathy and sympathy as we're trying to survive these language blocks because different people are affected by these language blocks differently. So you and I, um, we can talk about having foreign accents or being near native. We can talk about these things, feeling a little bit like, hmm, that is a very difficult language block to survive. But actually, we are still linguistically privileged because there are lots of people who don't, who don't have access to lots of these languages, let alone grappling with the idea of how do I change my accent to fit in. So this is, that, was, that was the idea of writing about the language blocks with a message of hope to say, 
now that we've identified all of these complexities associated with language, can we think of doing language education differently in ways that accommodate different identities, histories, stories, and in ways in which learners can embrace the different communicative repertoires while also trying to survive the language block. And that links to your question about the future of the field. I see us heading towards the social turn, in a, the social justice turn in applied linguistics. And I think this is something very promising because through the social justice turn, there is an ethical and moral commitment to understand the experiences of marginalized and minoritized voices. And hopefully through this turn, we will start to realize that our grand narratives and our grand theories of language are things that we need to revisit. There's a lot of revisiting to be done in, as a result of our work to decolonize the work or to approach it with a social justice turn. So I think this is one of our key directions of travel, Gracia, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was happy to hear you talking about social justice and decolonizing applied linguistics and really going from the critical to the decolonial back to maybe to the critical. Let's see, for sure it will be, we'll have lots of work to do ahead. But maybe for now, I think maybe we can close it here. And I would like to thank you very much, Haula, for your time today. And thank you very much indeed for having taken the time to write this wonderful book. I hope libraries will buy it. I hope educators will use them, this book in their course and that many people, of course, will read it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts, a podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.